and welcome to What's Brewing, CISFA? What's Brewing, CISFA? is a podcast produced for the California Community College's Student Financial Aid Administrators Association. I'm your host, Dennis Schrader. I serve as the 2021-2022 CISFA past president. Today will be a short episode, so I've given my co-host Dana a break from the show. But we'll hear from her on Friday. But until then, let's go ahead and start today's show. Again, welcome to another episode of What's Brewing, Sisva. Let's start this show off with our first cup. It's not a fancy cup or anything today. I've had my coffee for the day. Although there are coffee discussions going on right now in my office. Because apparently whatever K-cup I found, some kind of donut crumble something something, uh, everyone else has been drinking and now we are out. And now they're all trying to figure out how to get more cups. I'm sure they'll figure out a way. But anyways, today is normally a, a Tuesday news show. So we'll have some news in financial aid. And again, it'll probably be a short show because one of the things going on this week, NASFA is working on their website. They're doing some regular maintenance. So yesterday when I was trying to get onto the website, I found that out. Even though I'm sure I had received at least a couple emails in the week prior reminding me of the work on the website. <clears throat> so I don't have quite as many articles from them to relate to. But we have a few and let's get right on into it. First up, from Federal Student Aid, they put out an electronic announcement just last week, end of last week, uh, General-21-70, and it's about an, it's an update to some other information they'd put out regarding the issuing of financial aid offers and what institutions should include and avoid. So back in the old days, we'd call them award letters. You know, the things you'd get from the colleges and in a sense summarize what kind of financial aid you were going to get for the coming year. Made sense. It was financial aid awards. In a sense, like we were awarding it to you, I guess. And it was a letter, literally a piece of paper. But most colleges now are sending emails or we're really just sending you notifications that tell you to go check in the online student system about your awards. So this is uh, an update here to help students be less confused. And so in addition to an update that the feds have done on the college financial plan planning guide that they publish, they're updating some guidance that they give the institutions of higher ed about what they should include and what they ought to avoid when making financial aid offers. And so it's a quick rundown of some numbered items here. For example, the first one, avoid calling your financial aid offer an award and avoid calling it a letter. So two words in particular, award and letter, that we should avoid. For example, they say here, loans are not awards. Work study is not an award. It is potential for employment that offers earnings to students. Using a term like financial aid offer is clearer. Given that many institutions deliver these by electronic communication, that's where the word letter kind of makes a little a confusion among students. So offers 
might be a better term. Also reminds us, you know, include the cost of attendance in an award offer. Uh, again, cost of attendance is the breakdown of what we estimate the education-related expenses will be for the student for the school year. Everything from tuition and fees, books and supplies, room and board, even if they're living off campus, transportation, even if they're living on campus and not traveling back and forth to school, and other costs. It helps a student understand then how their financial aid offer was created because, in a sense, we can only award up to a student's need and in the broad sense of even non-need-based aid up to that total cost of attendance. There are some limitations out there. Some other things, Department of Ed reminds us, you know, to break down cost of attendance in ways that help students understand the cost. For example, you know, having them know what our direct costs like tuition and fees, maybe if they're living on campus, their room and board costs, but other costs is indirect, you know, books and supplies. You do need them, but there's so many options on how you buy them or rent them or get a hold of them. On top of the fact that for at least some books and all, a lot of professors are trying to find ways to make it less expensive by finding what they call like zero cost educational resources and things like that. So here, some additional things they include, like, you know, listing your grants and scholarship aid, loans and work study separately, you know, not clumping it like as grants or loans in case there's multiple types of loans and a few other things here. So some pretty good advice for all colleges out there on improving how they present their financial aid offers to students. I'll give you a link in the show notes to this electronic announcement out at the Federal Student Aid Partner Connect website. Our next item, something that hits close to home here, an article from Inside Higher Ed titled, Financial Aid Offices facing staffing shortages. And this is very true. So the lead line kind of summarizes it. The shortage of financial aid employees is especially worrisome given that the Department of Ed is now planning to beef up its enforcement of federal student aid rules. I think we talked about this last week at some point, how the Department of Ed is redeploying its enforcement office that had been in place for many years, but during the last presidential administration, kind of had been put onto the sideline uh, and not really put into play. But this really hits home because talks right here, for example, at a school, not even my own, but it says here, since mid-July, University of Texas at Arlington, their financial aid office has lost eight employees, over 20% of its workforce. And it says even though things have carried on or calmed down since, uh, the beginning of the academic year rush. The office is still working to fill vacancies um, and try to get ahead here. I can say the same thing. You know, what happened is for a lot of community college districts, let alone a lot of colleges, and this even predated, you know, the pandemic was this whole idea of what we call a supplemental retirement plan or SRP, which in a sense incentivizes those who, are near retirement, but not quite ready 
to consider retiring early because there's some kind of incentive implanted into it, you know, where maybe they give you a payment into a IRA or 401k that will help boost your overall retirement. Well, that helps in a way for the colleges, the lower cost, because conceivably some employee positions you might leave open. Others you may fill, but you might fill with more junior people, which means lower salary, lower benefit costs. But in any way, it gives you some flexibility on how to spend money that you save. But then there's a con. Obviously, you lose institutional knowledge. You lose people who may have had 20 or 30 or more years of experience in their jobs. I had that a number of years ago when my assistant director finally retired after many years with the college. And, you know, leaving a, a vacancy, in a sense, for a period of time till we're able to fill. But sometimes, you know, you have to convince people up the ladder what is a critical job that needs to be refilled. So this is something that uh, is probably hitting a number of colleagues. If it's hitting you, you know, you should write to the show. We could talk about this on air. I think it'd be a very interesting topic about how these retirement plans and generally people you know, having a hard time fill positions when across the state, at least here, even pre-pandemic, enrollment was starting to flatline. So I'll give you the link to the Inside Higher Ed article. Definitely worth reading. We finally got the update from CASFA, our California Association for Student Financial Aid Administrators, on all the training opportunities that are coming up this month. So just going to give you a few of them, but know that you can always, <coughs> excuse me, get the full list. The full list is always available at caspa.org slash training. But coming up next week on November 8th at noon, there's a session being put on by Attico called navigating first generation students to success. So it's, you know, understanding the, financial challenges, lack of family support, and unfamiliarity with institutional resources that are just some of those barriers that impedes the success of our first-generation students. So learning how to overcome that. So another free session put out there for uh, you and your financial aid staff. For those who work specifically on return to Title IV, the federal student aid people are going to be putting on a session on R2-T4 in modules. So you can join someone from the Department of Ed for a WASFA training session on learning how R2-T4 changed this past July 1st. So this training is coming up November 9th at 11 a.m. And again, I'll have a link to all of these easy enough to find for you. Another session here from Citizens Bank being put on called Thriving and Change on November 10th at 11 a.m. And its title is as clean cut as can be. Seize the opportunity to be resilient during times of transformation or disruption for you and your team. And I think we certainly have had some of that over the last year. Another topic coming up on the 10th at 2 p.m. So you can get two in the same day. Student eligibility. It's more than just C flags. 
And C flags is just terminology for when you get the results of the FAFSA at a school level, you get what we get. Um, the results include any kind of notation or special things that tells us there's something that affects a student's aid eligibility. And some of those are what we call C flags in the sense that it's got the letter C next to it. And it warns us that's something that we must correct or, you know, fix as far as a discrepancy. So this webinar being put on by College Aid Services uh, takes an in-depth look at eligibility requirements for federal student aid, you know, and examine those requirements and all the facets of student eligibility, including things like citizenship, NSLDS, financial aid history, for example, like defaulted loans and things like that, and Social Security, as in Social Security Administration, and usually a student's citizenship status. Oftentimes when they're switching from, say, permanent resident to U.S. citizen, naturalized citizen, there are some issues that show up on the FAFSA. Also, if you don't want to go to that, uh, but you wanted to know more about the Cal Grant Transfer Entitlement Program, also on November 10th at 2 p.m. is a session being put on by the California Student Aid Commission on that topic. So it's about the Transfer Entitlement Cal Grant Program, which is for students coming out of community colleges and then going on to the four-year schools. And so they'll include information on the awarding process, transfer scenarios, how to identify and clear our AB 540 verification flags and more in web grants. So another great session coming up. There's a whole lot more. I'm not going to go through them all. There's a Cal Grant 101 for those who are pretty new to understanding Cal Grants coming up on November 22nd at 2 p.m. again from CSAC, our California Student Aid Commission people. And then just a variety of other sessions for the rest of the month. Again, check out casva.org slash training. But before we go on, we're going to have some more news. Let's throw a little music right here up for everybody. All right, and we are back for a second cup and some more news. So get your refill. So Andrew Gillen, uh, I found a couple articles that he'd written and were posted at Minding the Campus, mindingthecampus.org, that is. Uh, and he writes on some high red stuff here. He's a senior policy analyst at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And yeah, he has a personal one here. Uh, it says here, I just made my last student loan payment. Here's how to improve the system. So he talks about how he borrowed over $30,000 for college. And after many years of repayment, he's officially debt free. Uh, as he says, you know, much of my professional life has been devoted to studying financial aid programs like student loans. In this essay, he reflects back on how student loan experience compares to that which his research indicates would constitute an ideal student loan system. So it's a nice little thing here. He does a little evolution of student loans from the early 2000s through literally this year and talks about how, you know, things have changed in a way, you know, the replacement of private lenders by the federal government. When we used to have what we called the FELP program, the Federal Family Education Loan Program 
where this is when I borrowed student loans, the loans came from lenders who had guarantee from the government, the federal government, that if like a loan would default and students wouldn't repay, that lender would still get some portion of that loan paid off. Now, because it was such a large program, the federal government in a sense gave state agencies the right to do the guarantee work, you know, confirming that the loans were legit and processed properly by the schools. And so states had guarantee agencies to do that for them. Well, a number of years ago, a number, a number of years ago, they switched over to what was called direct loan. And at, at first it was about 20% of schools and then more schools kept going on to it where your funding in a sense came directly from the federal government. Department of Treasury, you know, just kind of funded it. And in time, the federal family education loan program ended and everything was direct loan. Now, the other big thing that happened was uh, a a drift from our traditional repayment options, which would have been, you know, equal payments over 10 or more years. And things like graduated repayment, where maybe you started with smaller payments the first few years and it went up over time. To nowadays, most payment plans are what we call income-driven. So it's based upon your income. So conceivably, as your income goes up over time, your payments would go up to match, always staying about, you know, the same percentage or so, so that it doesn't become more of a burden than necessary. So as he says here, student loans should have an income contingent repayment. And I think that's very true. And it, again, seems to be coming to fruition. Some other things he writes about, though, like student loans should have no guarantees, have no loan guarantees for lenders or interest rate subsidies or loan forgiveness for students. That's a very uh, complicated topic because it might be talking more on the private loan or market out there, uh, not so much on federal loans per se. But an interesting article nonetheless here. One other thing. He wrote another article here, and this is something that's been hitting the news. And because I listened to the podcast from our national association, NASVA, this has been talked about a bit. So there's a lot of changes coming to the Public Service Loan Forgiveness, or PSLF, program. Um, In short, what this is, the PSLF program was launched in 2007 and provides accelerated loan forgiveness for um, certain types of public workers. Um, there's a lot of rules to it. That's the thing. It's The forgiveness comes after 10 years of repayment, which for some who would have little balances of student loans may never get to see. But after 10 years, conceivably, you could have part of it canceled if you're working for certain types of government or, or even public agencies and such. So this article, and Andrew Gillen again writes, says, you know, PSLF was already bad. The Biden administration just made it worse. I will admit this article is fairly opinionated. And if you've ever gone to minding the campus, and I check it out once in a while because everyone should check out all sides of the news when there are all sides of opinion on the news and read it. Um, again, he's got his... Uh, you know, druthers on why it is already a problematic program and why it might not be made better by what's going on now. 
but certainly worthwhile to read. I'll give you links to both of the Mining the Campus articles by Andrew. Another article here coming from the Washington Post. And the article is uh, in their education section called, Will That College Degree Pay Off? Well, look at some of the numbers. So, as it says here, I'll give you the lead off. A bachelor's degree in anthropology from Ithaca College costs $132,656 on average. And two years later, graduates are earning $19,227. A philosophy degree from Oberlin costs $142,220. And graduates two years later make $18,154 on average. Obviously, these are some of the extreme cases, but as it says here, you know, for more than 11 years, colleges have fought off attempts to hold them accountable for one of the most basic measures of student success, whether graduates learn, whether what graduates learn will provide them with a gainful employment they need to make it worth the price. So it's a good, it's a good article. This is something that's talked about a lot. It's interesting. They quote in this Washington Post article, from the Texas Public Policy Foundation, uh, uh, which I believe is a conservative-leading organization um, about some of the programs that they studied and such. Um, Some very interesting stuff here. Another group, Think Tank, Third Way, you know, identified over 5,900 public, private, nonprofit, and private for-profit college and university programs for which they say there is no financial return on investment in tuition based on how long it takes graduates to earn the money back. Kind of interesting stuff. You know, along with this article, and it gets in the Washington Post, so again, they may have a certain take on this, but certainly worthwhile reading. It's not a super long article, although it is kind of long here. Uh, it's certainly worthwhile reading. I'll say it kind of goes along with a, a number of books I just bought from Amazon and are sitting somewhere over on my Bookshelves, I can see one, The Price You Pay for College, next to another book about Will College Pay Off, and another book called Why Does College Cost So Much? Now, I've read some of these. I haven't read them all, uh, but I do like to buy books on education. And it's it's good to understand the pricing mechanisms behind things like this, because otherwise what you get is our last news article of the day here, and this comes from Inside Higher Ed. And it's on their blog. And it's a very interesting topic that you might see. This is something like almost you would see in a, a regular newspaper because it looks like it's written by a regular person. And so it's titled, Tuition Revenue, Where's All the Money? And so the question I posed on the blog is, if all these students are paying $50,000 in tuition, how come our college never or doesn't have more revenue to spend? And so, you know, it talks about, you know, the starting line is if the institution, you know, charges $50,000 for tuition, they have 2,000 students, that should be $100 million. Where is it? What do the administrators do with that money? And can someone explain this all? But it gets into um, something that I think people forget about. And you might hear this once in a while. And you might see this if you're sending a student off to a private school in particular. Discount rate. The words discount rate. And in a sense, what it is, and I know uh, some friends who work at private, nonprofit colleges, 
it is something they talk about significantly when you're in their enrollment management team. Uh, it would be nice enough if you did have the type of school that if you charge $50,000 to every student and yet 2,000 students, you'd make $100 million, and then you certainly could have a fantastic uh, institutional higher ed, I'm sure, and um, give great education to everyone. But discount rate plays into this. And it's the idea that, you know, institutions will put money forth of their own to, in a sense, discount the rate for some percentage of students based on everything from academic merit to financial need or otherwise. So that not every student's paying $50,000. But a school has to really know what is their discount rate. If you added up all the money you did collect, and divide by all your students. What is the average discount a student's receiving? Because at some point, you do have to collect some money. Because if you gave 100% discount for everyone, you'd have $0. If you gave no discount, you'd have all the money. But would you be attracting a wide pool of students to come to your institution? Students who are academically ready and eligible, but conceivably could not cover the finances. So it's a good article. It's a good start to a lot of this understanding that parents sometimes try to do. And again, you read this terminology a lot when you're looking at those college guides. If you're ever buying one of those in a bookstore like a Barnes & Noble, the big ones from Peterson's and such. Now, of course, it's all online, but it's the same kind of information. And it's good to read and try to understand that, you know, do they have a pretty high discount rate at a school that your student might be thinking about attending? Or if they don't, or are they a school that's trying to help cover costs for students and parents where the family income is below a certain cutoff, like a lot of Ivy League schools do. So things that will help you understand how the whole process works at the different colleges. Just going to leave you off with that. We're going to have a little music and into our last segment here on the show today. And for what was supposed to be a short show, it might not be too short at all. It might be very close to right on time. So we are, of course, at our last sip segment. Again, normally this would be the time that me and Dana would put forth maybe some I dare you to options for you. We've covered a variety of things lately. I can't say again that I've picked up any new books or anything like that. I do have some new books I did buy, but... They are all in the holding uh, uh, section of my bookshelves as I'm trying to get through a couple more books uh, from the summer that I didn't quite finish up reading on time. It's tough when you have books staring back at you all the time, and yeah, you know you want to get through at least some of them, but um, some very interesting topics out there that I'm sure I'll get through soon. So um don't really have any other I dare you to's today other than maybe I dare you to if you haven't listened to Off the Cuff, I will tell you that NASFA has retooled their podcast a little bit. They've changed things up a bit. You know, they've got a different music, different theme song. I will say that it does sound like they need to get a longer cut one day, start to 
show because it does have an abrupt ending. And unless you're very good at timing, it may end before where you want it to. Sometimes you want it to fade out and it doesn't quite do that. But uh, they are redoing it so that they'll cover different topics and talk to different people. They would like to talk to more people from the field. So financial aid directors out there in California and beyond, check in with NASFA if you are a NASFA member and find out if you want to be on the show or have your opinions listened to. Or if you have some expertise in an area that maybe you can help lend to the conversation, definitely consider it. So I'll give you that. NASFA's off-the-cuff podcast, 2.0 in a sense. Listen to it and check it out. Otherwise, that's really all we have time for today on the show. But don't worry, there's always our next episode at the end of the week. So I want to thank you, our audience, for tuning in. And if you have something to say or you have topics you want us to discuss, email us at wbcsfa.com at gmail.com you can find this and all what's brewing seeds for podcasts on google podcasts your apple podcast app spotify pandora iHeartRadio, and a TuneIn app on your amazon echo by using alexa what's brewing CISFA is a production of studio 1051 a creative collaboration of me and dana yarbrough this has been episode number 135 recorded tuesday november 2nd 2021. Everybody, have a great day and have a great week.